0: the therapeutic landscape in oncology is vast and ever-changing, marked by a dramatic pace of innovation and new approvals. In this complicated specialty, how can payers and provider keep up to make decisions that maximize life for the patient? I'm Nicole Magziars, Associate Director of Strategy at New Century Health, and with me today to examine this landscape is Dr. Vinay Prasad, a hematologist oncologist, an associate professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco, and best-selling author of Malignant, How Bad Policy and Bad Evidence Harm People with Cancer, and Dr. Andrew Hertler, Chief Medical Officer with New Century Health. Dr. Hertler, kick us off. How should we begin to evaluate the spectrum of therapies in oncology?
1: Thank you, Nicole. This is an incredibly timely topic, given the dramatic innovation going on in the oncology space, new drugs almost weekly, uh, accelerated approvals. And and Dr. Prasad, I'd like to talk a little bit with you about the use of surrogate endpoints. How good are these endpoints? And and for the oncologist in practice, how does one determine uh, when these new drugs that are coming on the market are actually useful and how useful?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I guess I would say a couple of things. I mean, I think we should always start by remembering what doctors and patients really want. And what doctors and patients really want are, we want drugs that can extend the lives of our patients and improve their quality of life, um, or drugs that merely improve the quality of life. And I, and I think we should not forget that that doctors and patients want drugs that do both. And for the most part, you know, although we talk a great deal about quality of life, and that is, of course, very important to our patients. And and when you survey cancer patients, often they prioritize quality over quantity. I think the simple fact is that drugs that are effective at improving survival often also improve quality of life. They go hand in hand for the most part. Um, But we have a regulatory system that's moving in a different direction. It's moving in the direction to give us more drug choices, I don't want to call it innovation because I'm not necessarily sure how many of these choices improve survival or quality of life. So a choice that doesn't really improve outcomes, in my mind, is not really innovative. It's simply new. And we have a regulatory system that approves two-thirds of cancer drugs based on a different metric. So about a third are approved based on shrinking tumors or reducing tumor burden. Uh, That's the response rate metric. And another third are approved based on a time-to-event endpoint like progression-free or disease-free survival, which is usually a composite endpoint, the time until one of several things happen, the time until a patient dies, that's part of the composite endpoint, or the time until the cancer gets worse based on some arbitrary metric like blood protein level or the size of the tumor on a CAT scan. And that's what we mean by surrogate endpoints. Response rate or measures of tumor shrinkage, time to event endpoints like PFS, These are surrogate endpoints, because if we're perfectly honest, patients don't suddenly feel better or worse at those specific cut points. You know, a patient with 29% tumor shrinkage, they have stable disease. If they have 31% tumor shrinkage, they have a response. There's nothing magical about 30%. They don't suddenly feel better at that number. And the same is true, of course, for for progression. And that's why these endpoints that are meant to be measurable, they're meant to be convenient stand-ins. They don't really directly measure what people care about which is living longer living better and i think it would be okay if they often and always went hand in hand with living longer and living better but i think there's increasing evidence that shows they just don't always predict living longer living better and so the net result is we have a system where many many new drugs come to market they're really expensive they they sound wonderful and they have wonderful marketing campaigns but not all of them help us live longer, live
1: better, which I think is what we care about, Dr. Hurtler. So as we look at these new drugs being approved, and as I read the releases through the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the little summaries they send out every time a new drug is approved, it's a minority of the time uh, that they will be approved based on a true overall survival uh, advantage. What we usually see is response rate alone sometimes, uh, as you acknowledged or, or progression-free survival. How often does progression-free survival or response rate actually translate into an overall survival advantage?
2: Well, I would say the answer is, unfortunately, not as high as we would expect. Um, I'll give you a couple pieces of data. Um, one piece of data is we took a set of those drugs that were approved based on response rate and PFS, and we followed them post-market about five years post-market. And we asked, how many of these drugs have a survival or quality of life benefit? Um, and in terms of survival, the answer was just 16%. And uh, only a, a few more had a quality of life benefit. Um, many had mixed quality of life results and a couple even had de- decremental quality of life results. Um, 16%, I think, is, is not good enough. Um, we, we, we don't want to be deploying toxic Extremely costly drugs in many, many people, based on tumor shrinkage, if only 15, 16% percent five years later shall they improve survival. Um, I think that that is a uh, sort of a failure of the regulatory system today actually just as just as I went to record this there's a drug for small cell lung cancer it's uh, Lurbanectinid, um, uh zepzelka, um, which was approved on the basis of again tumor shrinkage in a condition where you know, you really don't need to use a surrogate refractory small cell lung cancer because unfortunately, the clinical endpoint accrues so rapidly, the surrogate probably doesn't save you much time at all. And I've done some work to kind of show that with my colleague, Emerson Chen. Um, So nevertheless, this drug was approved for small cell lung cancer for tumor shrinkage. And lo and behold, December 3rd, um, the combo uh, of this new drug, plus doxorubicin, misses the OS endpoint in a phase three small cell lung cancer trial. So, you know, the point is that just because a drug can shrink a tumor doesn't necessarily mean it leads to a longer or better life. Um, There are a number of reasons we could talk about as to why that's the case, but the reality is that is the case. And for a doctor and a patient who want to make healthcare choices that maximize life, you just can't hang your hat on a response rate or a PFS. I wish you could.
1: And that's the dilemma um, for a practicing oncologist. Most of us are not biostatisticians. We have a little bit of knowledge of how to read a study and how to read a paper. Uh, But when we see these new approvals, how do we determine what really is going to benefit our patient? Is there any degree of progression-free survival uh, that is large enough that we can make an assumption that there is more likely than not? Um, an overall survival uh, advantage because we want to do what's best for our patient but it can be very hard uh, to interpret this literature for someone who's in practice and really is spending 10 12 hours a day seeing patients and maybe has maybe has a couple of hours a week to look at the medical literature
2: you know I'm I, I, I'm so sympathetic with that challenge um, you know that many of us in clinic, we just don't have the time, the ability, the resources to do a deep dive on. We don't have a time, ability, resources to do a deep dive on on these products to to look very deeply to see whether or not they actually do um, improve survival quality of life and what the available data is. Um, I think I think. Many of the people who should be guiding us, I, I hesitate to say this, but I think it's the truth. They, they don't guide us. Um, you look at a guidelines like the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, you know, one of the premier networks in our field, and it is not guidance. It's a laundry list. It's a laundry list of many, many things largely used to help insurers pay for things. That doesn't really help the practicing doctor decide what they ought to do. Um, I think many of us rely on things like that and up to date, um, but I don't always feel like we get what we need from those products. Um, I will say the answer to your specific question, which is, there's a technical term for it, which is called the surrogate threshold effect. So this is the idea that a surrogate endpoint may be weak, response rate may not always predict OS, but perhaps there is a threshold beyond which progression-free survival does predict OS four months, five months, six months, 12 months, at some point, you know, a big PFS benefit has got to predict OS. Well, the reality of that is, I guess, one, there's there's this technical challenge, which is, um, it's going to be tough to explain, but it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. If any two variables are positively related, you can, after the fact, draw a line that says beyond this point, there will be prediction. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that's true. Um, And an analogy is something called the Texas sharpshooters fallacy, which is really that if you shoot a gun at a target and you get to draw the target after the bullets hit the the paper, well, then, of course, you look like a Texas sharpshooter. And similarly, if PFS and OS have a positive trend together, you can always draw a line and say, oh, it's eight months, it's seven months um, after the fact just like the Texas sharpshooter who draws the bullseye after they shoot the bullets. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that that's true. So I think from a method standpoint, as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about that, I hear that argument, I'm sympathetic to it, I know where it comes from, but it is really, really hard to show that statistically. Um, And I don't think the people who wish to claim it are all equally stringent when it comes to making that claim. Um, So the short answer to your question is, I think there are a couple settings where we do and can put some trust in surrogate endpoints um i think about dfs in colon cancer and lung cancer in the adjuvant setting but even there i would put an asterisk and i would say it's probably only true for cytotoxic drugs and a new drug like uh, osimertinib in the adora study um, i'm not necessarily sure it will show an os benefit had it been tested in a trial where the control arm all got osimertinib at progression. Of course, in the ADORA study, we don't know for sure what the control arm is getting on progression, but gosh, I wish it were Um, So this is a long answer to your question, Dr. Hurtler, which is that I don't think our professional societies give us the guidance we need. I don't think the average doctor should be tasked with doing that. I think we do need independent support for doctors to help us make decisions that are more in line with being a good steward of of cancer drugs, of giving people what they want, um, but not necessarily um, giving them um, so many choices that we have sort of a choice paralysis. We don't know what to choose.
1: Well, let me put you on the spot a little bit, Dr. Prasad. And as we look at the medications that have been uh, moving on the market, both recently and a little more in their more remote past, talk about a couple of different drugs. Um, first one I'd like to bring up is, is bevacizumab or Avastin, very popular drug now used in a, a number of disease, most notably, of course, colorectal cancer and non-small cell lung cancer uh, and um, glioblastoma. Yet when I, uh, as a clinician, look at the actual data from the studies, um i get much less impressed something on the order of 3 months in, in non small cell lung cancer uh and no survival advantage actually in glioblastoma so what your, what's your take on avastin this is a very popular drug heavily used relatively expensive uh, could i ask you to comment a little on it
2: gosh it's um a great question i i have a lot of conflicting feelings about avastin um Here's what I'll start by saying what I like about Avastin. I think what I like about Avastin is also what I don't like about Avastin, which is it can be combined with many other therapies. And so that's been both the blessing and the curse of Avastin. The blessing is, of course, not all our cancer drugs can be combined with some of the other things we're doing. They have serious interaction toxicities that uh, prevent drug development. Avastin... Although it does have toxicity, I think we shouldn't minimize that. It has the risk of perforation, hypertension, stroke. We've all been there as oncologists dealing with a vast in toxicities. And I would say I, I I'm not happy with those toxicities. But I can still combine it with you know platinum doublets. I can combine it with fulfox. I can combine it in lung cancer. I can take it over to um, to GBM. Um, you know you can use it in so many different settings, so many different combinations. But I think one of the things that's led to is an explosion of randomized control trials. I think a couple of years ago, I counted up over 40. I think there are way more now. Uh, randomized trials, plus or minus Avastin. When you run so many randomized trials of Avastin, you know, by chance alone, some of them are going to be positive. It's just a matter of chance. You keep pulling the slot machine handle, you're going to get some cherries. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're all telling you a reliable result. And we've been very interested in trying to separate, I think, the chance positivity from the real positivity. Um, But that's a technical point. The real point is that when Avastin does work, where we think it does work, the benefits are often quite modest. You know, we're talking about a month or two-month survival benefit in the carefully curated patients on a trial. What does that mean in the real world? Who knows? In some cases, we don't have the survival benefit. We just have a PFS benefit. We're hanging our hat on that. And as we know, many times PFS fails to predict OS. Um, I think Avastin is this incredibly challenging drug. I mean, we've spent upwards of $70 billion as a society on this drug. What have we gotten from it? Perhaps in a couple malignancies, some modest survival extension, perhaps in other malignancies, no survival extension at all, Um, and perhaps a great deal of toxicity. And what could we have done with that $70 $70 billion, correction, billion? Um, I think we could have done so much for our cancer patients. So to me, a drug like an Avastin is it's this great symbol, I think, from the industry side of what a successful drug looks like. It's made oodles of money for this company, but has it really helped bend the cancer mortality curve for our patients? And I struggle with that question. I, I my bias is I don't think it has. I don't think it has. And and so I think it's 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 just a really tough drug um, to wrap your head around. What we the opportunity cost for having pursued it so vigorously.
1: Well, in the few minutes left, let me touch on a a class of drugs. That's the PD-1 and PD-1 ligand uh, checkpoint inhibitors. And uh, again, as a clinician, when I look at the the landscape, uh, particularly at metastatic melanoma, a disease which uh, I think has challenged us throughout my career, uh, where very often uh, patients with that diagnosis uh, would live six months, maybe 12 And and the the results with the PD1, PD1 ligand class seem um, absolutely um, amazing uh, in in melanoma. Now, these drugs are being used in multiple other um, tumor types as well. And and often the results don't bowl me over the way they do in melanoma. So I'd be very interested in in your take. obviously almost impossible in the few minutes we have left, but your take on the, the PD-1 inhibitor, PD-1 ligand inhibitor class of drugs?
2: Yeah, I, I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, I think when we step back and we'll look at the last decade of oncology, this class of drugs is going to emerge as um, potentially the most impact, impacting class. I mean, it has, it has affected the most diverse malignancies. Um, Pembrolizumab may someday be the single most lucrative cancer drug in human history, may have the most approvals of any drug in human history. Um, But we shouldn't confuse a couple things, and you're making an excellent point. In melanoma, it is a wonder drug, and we've all seen those durable remissions that we are so grateful for. But let's contrast it with small cell lung cancer. I mean, in small cell lung cancer, you have conflicting studies. You don't have positive studies for all the drugs, pdl one and PD-1. You've got an Atezo and a Derva, but you, you don't have a Nevo and a Pembro. Um, and and the benefits you have in the ones that are positive are, 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 are not what we would hope. I mean, just a couple months, survival benefit. And that's in the carefully curated people who participate in a trial. I've said that once before. Let me just unpack that a little bit. By that, I mean, um, you know the people who enroll in randomized studies are often very different than the people we take care of in our clinics. Um, They live longer. They have fewer comorbidities. They're younger. They have potentially more indolent biology um, than average cancer patients. They're not as old. They're not as frail. Um, When one extrapolates the results of New England Journal papers to your own practice, um, my, my impulse is to believe that the absolute benefit seen are going to diminish. And I think there's some empirical data to show that. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that in a future episode. But um, I think you're not going to get as much as you're going to get in the trial. The trial is an optimistic estimate of what the drugs can do. And so you take a drug like a Tezo when you're combining it with, car- with carbo or platinum etoposide um, in small cell, um, you might not get what you get in the trial. Um, and, but even if you got what you got in the trial, I don't think it's what we see with melanoma. So I think you're spot on that we should have a cautious enthusiasm of these drugs. Just because a drug works very well in one tumor type doesn't mean it works well in every tumor type. Um, uh, Trastuzumab, how it works in gastric cancer, is different than how it works in breast cancer, I would argue. And the same for Pembro in, in, uh, in, uh, in melanoma versus Pembro in small cell lung cancer.
1: I'm always reminded of something that a number of my patients said over the years, uh, that when we get excited about a drug because it gives us three months or six-month improvement in overall survival, but my 55-year-old patient with lung cancer who says, I don't want to live another six months. Uh, I want to live to be a 70-year-old man. I want to live to be 75, and that we as oncologists sometimes uh, get very excited about uh, what really is incremental improvement, which doesn't means more to us than it probably does to our patients. So I, that's the point I, I, I always try to remember. and the, the years we can give me- a melanoma patient are very different from the months we're giving to people with other diseases.
0: I agree with you fully. Great, Thank you both. We'll leave it there for today. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to visit us on newcenturyhealth.com for more on this topic and for future episodes in this series.